Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everyone, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined, as usual, uh, with my colleagues, Abby Duty and Curtis Wister, the KC-135 and F-16 to my Gulfstream. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> doing good, Ben. How are, How are you? How are you? Good. I put you guys as the military aggressive uh, piece, and I'm the, I'm the fast, sleek one. So, uh, but of course, we did planes as the intro here today. So the theme that we're looking at is uh, is actually the world of piloting over fifty is the title of today's show, and really the the thought being of of piloting and kind of accessing the piloting world and and flight world was the idea of what if there is a time machine, right? And how would that change our lives? How would you do things differently if you could? Mm. So that's really the, the the point about piloting is that we're doing a different take on that in, as, a, as a time machine, right? Is that, you know, you can get to places where you want to quicker and give you more time to do things that you want and, and maybe explore things that you hadn't seen or see things from different a- angles. So really, as we're aging, especially, we tend to be a bit more sensitive to how we spend our time and what we do with our time. So a lot of times in our, our client meetings, you know, pre-retirees or retirees are really stating the goal to us that they really want to travel to places and experience new things. But sometimes the biggest issue is getting there, right? Especially where we're in Maine in you know, in the Northeast corner of the country, it's very rural. It's tough to get to point A to point B. And that's the idea of the time machine, right? Is, uh, you know, if it's tough for you to get to where you want to go, but you know, I like where I live. I like Maine. I like maybe being a little more remote. Mm -hmm. All those are really kind of good things. And, you know, we are probably very used to driving to our destinations, especially if you want to go to Boston and, you know, for uh, Abby's uh, sitting in uh, northern Maine right now, uh, <laughs> way northern Maine, Aroostook County. So for her to get to Boston, right, you're talking about a maybe six hour, seven hour drive one way to kind of get there. So, you know, those are things that all of us really face be, by being in Maine is, is sometimes it's really hard to access things. What if you could get there in a half the time or a third of the time? You know, what if uh, you were going to winter in Florida or, you know, Larry enjoys uh, Pelletier in North Carolina and you want to go back and forth, but it takes multiple full days to drive there Mm -hmm. and you're getting older and you're a little more uncomfortable doing it that way. So what if you could do that in one day? So that's the idea here is. What about there's there's longer trips maybe that I always want to go to Arizona, but I'm at the whim of the uh, commercial airline industry and their mm-hmm. schedule. So especially in today's day and age where we've had uh, obviously gone through coronavirus and, you know, obviously that's a concern, too, is flying with lots of people. Yeah. So, you know, here's the concept what we're thinking about is the concept of private flights and really finding true location freedom in retirement. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where we were thinking of and why we, we reached out to our next guest. So our next guest is the Eastern Regional Manager at Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, uh, AOPA is where you you might have heard the acronym before. And his role is he advocates for the general aviation interest for AOPA and its members at the state and local level from Maine to Virginia. Uh, In my eye, I kind of think of AAA for for, uh, people that drive cars. So he also works to build the general aviation community and represents AOPA at local regional aviation events. 
And he uh, so like does obviously represents that part, but he has a commercial pilot certificate with instrument and multi-engine ratings as well. So wow. he's kind of done that side. So I want to welcome to the Retirement Success and Main podcast, uh, Sean Collins. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, welcome. Uh, one thing that we always like to do with all of our guests is to dig into a little bit of you and, and your background. So maybe you could just spend a moment with, again, your background, where you grew up, where you're from, and, and kind of your path towards becoming a pilot, but also to AOPA. Sure, absolutely. So I actually grew up right down the road in Warrington, Maine, and uh, I went to Brewer High School. We graduated in 2003, and from there I attended uh, Bridgewater State College, uh, now State University, Bridgewater, Massachusetts. So while there, I earned a uh, bachelor's degree in aviation science with a double concentration of aviation management and professional pilot, uh, which is where I got my pilot certificate uh, up through commercial, as well as my other ratings. And um, from there, I got my job with, with uh, AOPA in the Pilot Information Center in the, it was the summer of 2007, and I've actually remained with the organization for about 13 years since then in various capacities. But growing up in the Bangor area affords one a unique opportunity to see a lot of interesting aircraft come in and out of the Bangor International Airport. And I think it was really from that experience growing up that really led to my, my interest and desire at an early, very early age to become a pilot. And I'm just fortunate that, that I was able to press ahead and, and follow that dream through to fruition. And one of the things that I know, Sean, you and I have a personal connection and family member here is, uh, so my wife, Kara, is cousins with Sean. And one thing, just knowing Sean over a lot of my life is seeing he, as he's growing up uh, into uh, what's called ACE camp, right, is is really kind of this uh, getting youth involved in, in terms of aviation, getting to experience it. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Because I know that you went from, you attended, but also was a counselor for ACE camp as well. Yeah, so for any kid who's interested in aviation, it's it's uh, it's akin to space camp, which many of us have heard about growing up, but this is something that was local and tangible for me. Um, and at that time, it was uh, a week-long overnight camp. It was a program sponsored by the FAA as well as the New York Guard, and a number of states have these, but essentially they are independent-run camps, and it's really all about aviation exposure. Everything, not just flying and being pilots, but air traffic control, airport management, uh, airport firefighters, uh, maintenance technicians, everything is really what it was intended to do, just expose youth to the different facets of aviation. And certainly from that, I attended four years as a camper and then went back and was a counselor for, uh, I think, two years. So something uh, that's near and dear to me and a number of the pilots across the state of Maine. So pretty cool because, again, from my end is here's somebody that just from, you know, when you're much younger, you had this interest, your parents helped you explore that interest, you know, it turned into, hey, this is somewhere I want to be, you go to Bridgewater State, you you explore a lot of the different areas, you know, you, you then go, hey, well, where where can I make a difference and how can I uh, really get to get the lay of the land in the industry? Now you're with AOPA. Can you talk a little bit more about AOPA and what they as an organization really do? And then your role, because I know you have a pretty widespread role uh, with AOPA as well. Right. Absolutely. So, um AOPA is the world's largest aviation membership organization. So we represent uh, approximately 330,000 aircraft owners and pilots across the country. Um, we were established in 1939, and since that time, we've been committed to ensuring the safety, future viability, and the development of what is the general aviation industry um, as an integral part of the national transportation system. Now, I should cover that general aviation is all aviation, excluding the airlines, 
in the military. Mm -hmm. So every other facet of, of aviation falls into this kind of general bucket that we call general aviation. Gotcha. So in terms of your role, can you just talk a little bit about when you say, when, when we kind of say you're advocating for general interests? So what does that mean that you're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis uh, kind of when you, when you advocate? Sure, absolutely. So not unlike your um, comparison to AAA, that it is very much how we operate, right? So we're, we're here to represent our members, which are aircraft owners and pilots. And so um, my function as a regional manager is primarily at the state legislative level and then at the airport level. You know, I'll advocate for uh, pro-general aviation legislation at the state level in my 13 states or oppose, you know, negative legislation. And that can take the form of supporting uh, funding for airports in the state. Um, that could also be, uh, you know, trying to oppose taxes that, you know, unfairly affect aviation versus other forms of transportation, things along those lines. On the airport side of it, there's uh, a number of different facets that we try to help. Certainly, we try to help our pilots with the issues that they have at airports, but more importantly, we try to help airports with their issues in their communities. Um, so oftentimes, um, sometimes folks who live near an airport but don't like aviation or the noise that sometimes comes from it will complain about it. So that might be an example where I would go out and try to help the airport explain its value to the community and try to help find a solution to those issues. Gotcha. Like it. Well, Sean, really excited to have you on the show today because, again, from our end, you know, we, we hear from a lot of our clients about, hey, I have an interest in, hey, I want to do things more quickly, right? I want to get to places more quickly. I want to maybe experience something. But, you know, the idea of, of like private flights and kind of thinking about, you know, accessing uh, flying planes just seems a little scary if you've never done that before and you don't really know where to start. So that's really the, the premise of today's show is really, hey, I've never done this. I really don't know where I'm going. I don't know how to get started is saying, hey, I want to start accessing this world. So we want to kind of, in terms of the questions that we're going to cover today, is really this thought of the, the 101 lesson here of, of how do I access this, uh, this world? And again, there maybe there's some issues as we age, and we want to talk to you about that as well. Uh, so let's really start with the appeal of piloting private planes. So what is it that really appeals to people to pilot their own plane to different locales? Like, why would you do that? Like, why wouldn't you just, again, from a commercial perspective, you can just go to your local commercial airport, hop on a commercial flight and do this. So why, why have people kind of done more of this like private, uh, private piloting? Sure. Well, like anything, you know, you ask a hundred people why they like something, you're going to get a hundred slightly different answers. <laughs> sure. <laughs> For the most part in aviation, uh, I think you find that the majority of pilots view flying as kind of the ultimate expression of freedom. Go where you want, when you want, how you want to do it on, on your time. So that's part of it. And, and you covered it in the intro, you know, Aircraft afford one, it, it is a time machine. And when used correctly in certain situations, it can also be a money saver relative to the airlines. There is always an expense associated with it. But um, in that sense, it's not really any different than boating, sailing, or, or other forms, common forms of recreation, even here in Maine. So I, I think the, the real appeal of it is, um, again, it's really that, that freedom aspect. Do what you want, when you want to do it. But we also have a much better thing. <laughs> a lot of times when people talk about doing something new that can you know make them scared to try something different um, especially something like piloting so if someone has never piloted a plane before 
but wants to get started, kind of what would you advise them? How, where do they even start to do this? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we actually hear that a lot. I, and in fact, uh, I referenced it earlier. I, I started my career at AOP in the Pilot Information Center, which is a technical call center. Mm-hmm. And with that, we would get calls uh, from everything, from our members to non-members who are interested in flying. And, and that's probably what we would hear more often than not. You know, I've always had an interest in it, but I'm a little afraid to do it, and I've just yeah. never done it. Well, so the first advice that we give is go have an introductory flight. Try mm-hmm. it out. Most flight schools will provide what is called an intro flight, introductory flight, and that's usually a reduced mm-hmm. cost uh, flight experience. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit more than a, than a, like a flight scene flight where you're, you're paying to be showcased around an area, so to speak. In this case, the intro flight is an opportunity for you to actually get in the airplane with a flight instructor and get a little bit of that flying experience yourself. And so always that's our first recommendation because it's possible you could decide after you've done it, oh, maybe flying's not for you. And that's okay too. Um, but it's certainly better to figure that out before you shovel out money to learn to fly uh, than afterwards. So that's usually the first step that we recommend. So say I do something like that and I do that intro flight and then I'm ready to go. I want to do it. What is that process like for me to get my pilot's license? Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So typically what will happen after that intro flight is you'll sit down and talk with the instructor or representative of the flight school, and, and they'll explain a lot of this to you at that time. Okay. So there's a couple of different options that people have to learn to fly, and the most common that people have heard of is becoming a private pilot. Mm-hmm. Typically, that's the first stage, the first thing that you'll do. And and that affords the most freedoms or privileges, I guess I should say, mm-hmm. um, with regard to your training options. Now, there are other options or other routes that people could go to learn how to fly. But I guess as a, as a comparison, with the private pilot being the most common, that actually requires a minimum of about 40 hours of flight training before okay. you can take a check ride to actually become certificated to be a private pilot. Some of the other options include sport pilot. Now, again, everything's a, a bit of a give and take. Being a private pilot, you have to go get what's called a, your flight medical. And that can present a hurdle for somebody that has certain medical conditions, depending upon what those are. So the alternate to that, if you're otherwise still healthy and capable of flying, is to go into sport pilot. Hmm. The primary difference between the two is becoming a sport pilot only requires about 20 hours of flight training, um, but you're limited to a much smaller set of aircraft um, gotcha. that you're permitted to fly. Gotcha. Uh, and that in itself isn't a bad thing, but because that program is so strict on the basis of, of what you're allowed to fly, those options might not be as common for you in your area mm. as they are to become a private pilot. Gotcha. So, okay. Sean, does that, does that limit you in terms of where you can fly in terms of the private license versus the sport license? Like if you could go like over state lines or, or in a yeah. region so, relative to an airport? From a practicality standpoint, it doesn't limit your destination per se, but being a smaller aircraft, that does have some operational limitations on you for a given flight. And some of the other aspects of that is it's limited for the most part to daytime travel and below 10,000 feet. Again, mm-hmm. the type of aircraft you would fly as a sport pilot, you're probably not going to be over 10,000 feet anyway. Um, even myself as a commercial pilot, just the nature of the type of flying that I do, rarely if ever am I over 10,000 feet. And that's just the nature, again, of the aircraft that I choose to fly. Hmm. So there are some operational restrictions. But again, if your goal is just to have fun and fly on good weather days um, and with no more than your spouse or one other passenger, then the sport pilot would be the way to do that at a reduced cost hmm. uh, entry point as well. Interesting. So I want to kind of follow up on the the license topic. So now fast forward, say I have a pilot license. So similarly, or I don't know if it's similar, similar, that's my question for you. Um, So in the state of Maine, for example, when you have a driver's license, 
as you age, you have to have it renewed. Um, when you hit a certain age, you have to start doing eye exams and other, you know, medical restrictions may come in at that point. Is there a similar kind of progression with a pilot's license or is it like a one and done situation? Well, so it's, uh, it's somewhat similar and, and very different. So once you've earned a pilot certificate, it's yours for life. You don't have to renew your pilot certificate. Okay. Um, and that's, uh, that's an exciting part for a lot of folks in aviation because unlike a state driver's license, which is state issued, your, your pilot certificate is issued by the FAA. So it's, a, it's a federal form of identification on, on some level, but it's a, it's a federal certificate. Where it's similar, though, is uh, we have the medical side, and then we also have the FAA's recency flight experience requirement. So just because you have a pilot certificate doesn't necessarily mean you're safe to fly on a given day. Gotcha. And so the FAA has fairly strict standards that we have to maintain our currency to be able to fly ourselves, and even a higher currency to be able to fly other people. So that is how we ensure, again, a minimum level of safety um, beyond what you would expect with the automobile. Right. Yeah. As long as you have your driver's license, you can jump in it. Can't can't necessarily do that in the airplane. Hmm. Some might view that as a hurdle to flying, but but actually, the one thing pilots love to do is fly. So training is is uh, usually a welcome experience because it's just another excuse to get up there. Like um, now, on the medical side of it, there are some currency requirements for that. So there's generally there's three types of medicals. We have uh, first class, second class, and third class. The process of the medical is actually the same. It's really the difference is the uh, how long that certificate is valid for. So uh, if you if you're an airline captain, for instance, you have to get your medical. You have to have a first class medical, and that means those privileges allow you to be exercise your airline transport certificate credentials for only six months at a time, and you have to renew that medical certificate every six months. Why is that? Because that's the FAA's way to ensure that the captain of your airliner is is less likely to have a medical event while they're flying you in the airport. Conversely, a private pilot who's only going to, for the most part, fly his or herself and family members, they only have to get a, a third-class medical. And the difference is, if you're under age 40, that third-class medical can be valid for up to five years. Five calendar years is how we say it. If you're over age 40, it's valid for 24 calendar months or two years. Hmm. Um, so you would have to renew that every two years. Yeah. Now, there are certain medical conditions out there that uh, are automatically disqualifying. Those are, there's 15 of them, I believe, is the total. But those would things, be things like um, bipolar disorder or uh, epilepsy. Um, and I've actually got my list up here. Psychosis. And then the two that are really the most common inhibitors um, would be substance abuse or substance dependence. And kind of, I'll say for obvious reasons, you know, those are the folks where the FAA would say that, you know, unfortunately, in those circumstances, you cannot get a medical and therefore mm. wouldn't be able to get a private pilot certificate. But outside of that, you know, there's a number of um, medical conditions that uh, the FAA would be interested in. So as part of the medical process, you actually have to go to what's called an aviation medical examiner. And it's possible that your own healthcare provider could be an aviation medical examiner, just a certification that the FAA gives. And really, it's, it's, uh, you have to get your, your physical, which is what it is, your flight physical. Mm -hmm. and, and they're verifying that whatever medical conditions you have aren't the type that are going to impair your ability to fly the airplane. And sometimes it's not even the medical condition that can cause an issue. There could be a concern with medications. So they would be able to help you figure out, you know, are you actually safe to fly? So after you do that intro flight, the very next thing we, we recommend that somebody does if they decide they are interested in this, they need yeah. to meet with their, well, with their uh, closest aviation medical examiner. Because that, that's really the first thing is, can you get your medical certificate? 
Which kind of makes sense on a lot of different levels, right? Is you don't want to be, hey, if I, and I don't know if this is the case, but say I'm on a really heavy dose of a, like a blood pressure medication and, you know, all like basically because of that, maybe that allows me to, you know, because of a certain flight maneuver, you know, air pressure change or something. And that causes me to have maybe a health event in the sky. That's the obviously type of thing that wants to be avoided by going through that level of rigorous um, kind of health screening, right? Right. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, heart conditions are probably some of the more common yeah. that general public experiences and high blood pressure is probably the most common issue if we can use that term loosely that a pilot would experience so, and obviously that can affect otherwise normally healthy people so high blood pressure in itself isn't necessarily a concern but it's as it's a, an indicator of other issues that is something that the faa and if your primary doctor would be interested in anyway and so sometimes the issues that we see with that aren't actually the condition again it's the medication or the combination of medications mm. that they take and exactly for that reason and so if you happen to have a condition that is a an allowable condition you know, that's when you would want to work with your primary healthcare provider and your aviation medical examiner to identify um, what medications might be a better alternative if, for instance, there's a problem with, again, whatever it is you take. But again, that's that's one of those things that's a, an otherwise very easy thing to overcome if you happen to run up against that. So I think what we're hearing you say, Sean, is that it's really not an aging concern is what the FAA would have an issue with, right? Is this the issue being of, hey, that I've developed some sort of health condition and that the health condition and or the combination of medication to treat the condition could create an issue if I was piloting a plane. And and that's why they want to be very careful on making So it's not that, hey, I'm 90 years old and that, because I'm 90, I can't do this. But if I'm 90 and healthy and I don't have any other health conditions, that would maybe not be. So the number age is probably not the issue. It's more of the health conditions might go along with aging itself. Uh, correct. In, in terms of uh, the FAA and flying, aging is not an issue. In fact, I know a number of pilots and flight instructors, active flight instructors who are in their 90s and still going strong because that's what they love. Right. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about a, an older experienced pilot is that experience that they have. So. You know, there's uh, age in itself is should never be a, a restrictor for someone's interest in learning to fly. Nice. Because I know that's something where uh, I think that that would be a worry that, again, our clients are kind of telling us is, hey, if I started at 55 or I started at 65, that maybe at 67, you know, I do all this work and now I can't fly anymore because all of a sudden I'm aged out of it or something. Right. So I think that's some of the, the myth hmm. there. I think you help dispel that it's not that I, I I do all this work and I get one year of actual enjoyment out of it. Uh, but, yeah, that could that could serve you pretty well for a long period of time. Yeah, so um, I guess as a, an aside to that, our average member is uh, about 47 years of age, but the average aircraft owner is about 65 to 67 years of age. So, oh, nice. And I think that that probably follows uh, along with the, the nature of our lives, right? Because at that point, we're at a stage in our life where we tend to have more time and money available relative to an earlier stage of life where we're raising children. So quite ironically, I guess your your core client is, is our core member. <laughs> Right. And I think that's where we're trying to go with this is, hey, this is something where, look, you know, people are retiring and then they have access to a lot of wealth of, but the idea of, well, this is meant for, to provide for me over the course of my life and my spouse's life or my family's life here. And what I don't want to be frivolous with it, right? I don't want to then just 
spend all of it in, in three years, then I don't have anything else to live on. So that, that kind of goes to this idea of affordability, right? And one of the things, Sean, that you mentioned, which kind of piqued my ears a little bit previously was, hey, so sometimes private uh, flights and, and flying uh, or piloting yourself can be cheaper than commercial airlines at times, which so that would not have been my first thought is, okay, you're going to learn how to fly, you're going to have to either rent a plane or buy a plane. Uh, what so I, I want to help help me understand here, I, I want to hear a little bit about the affordability to pilot and fly planes first. And I'm gonna I got like several more follow ups on on budgeting and kind of the, the pricing of it. But can you talk about who can afford it? Because I think that's something where that would be a core concern of our of our clients there. Right. So you know, there's a number of ways to answer that question, right? Who can afford it? So I know there are many high school teachers who are pilots. I know truck drivers who are pilots. But on the other end, I know doctors and lawyers who are pilots. So in terms of you know who can be a pilot, anybody that wants to be a pilot can be a pilot. But as I said before, there is a cost associated with learning to fly. So to get the private pilot certificate today, um, you're probably looking at spending around eight to nine thousand dollars here in the state of Maine to get your private pilot certificate. But a lot of that is is intended to ensure again that you're going to keep yourself safe. So on some level, you're really making an investment in yourself to be safe to do something that you really want to do. Now, where I suggested that uh, flying can be uh, a cost saver over the airlines, that's all relative, of course, to how much someone wants to travel. Sure. Um, by the same token, if you're going to go from here to Florida a bunch of times or, or out to Arizona, it really depends upon how frequently you're doing that and how much you're spending at the airlines, obviously, will dictate what your savings is going to be. Right. Um, when you're paying for your airline ticket, you're not buying an airplane and having to pay for its, its maintenance. Yet. But your hourly operational cost to get from here to Florida might only take you three hours uh, in an airplane, depending upon what you have or capable of getting. And in that time frame, you might spend five or $600 and you're taking yourself and your spouse and the two family dogs and all of your gear with you. Or on the airlines, you're likely to spend upwards of 800 to to $1,000 to get everybody else there. Hmm. So is the cost of ownership greater in the circumstance? In the bigger picture, yes. But in the smaller window of the time it takes you to get from point A to point B, you're going to spend less money on that flight than you would going through the airlines. But you're also cutting out all the other aggravations too, right? In aviation, we don't really have to deal with the TSA like you do. You have to get to your flight at least two hours or earlier. Now in pandemic times, probably three or four hours earlier. Wait in line with all these other people, go through security, hope it doesn't beep on you, and then wait at your gate. There's an expression we use in aviation called hurry up and wait. <laughs> not so much of that on our end, at least, uh, at least with the, the airlines and all that. So that, that's another benefit to it. Do, so I guess the question then, so affordability wise is, do I have to buy a plane, right? Because, hey, I got my pilot certificate and I'm able to fly things. Well, then how do I access a plane and what's the best way to do it? Is it Well, now, you know, as you said, you've got a truck driver that um, that wants to fly a plane. Well, that's that could be different than somebody says, well, I, I you know, I want to buy the plane and I, you know, I want to buy a certain plane. So can you talk about that aspect of it? Because I think the access to a plane is a big question of, hey, I got my certificate. Now what? And and, and can I afford it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of different options that you have. So for instance, I'm, I'm, I'm a commercial pilot. I, I do fly for work, but I don't own my own airport. Um, there was a time where AOPA provided me an airplane to fly. We actually based it in, in Old Town for, for a year. And before we had moved back to Maine, um, we actually leased an airplane for me to use in, in Massachusetts. 
Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can do that. But right now, I don't own the plane. So how do I fly? I actually go up to uh, the Hancock County Airport down in uh, Trenton, and um, I rent aircraft there from, from the flight school that's based there. So that's one way to do it. It's, it's not unlike renting a car once you become a, a certificated pilot. You get checked out for insurance purposes with the, the owner of the flight school uh, to make sure that they're safe and to prove that you're safe as a pilot. But once you do that, then you just get yourself on the schedule and you can take the airplane and go. The truth of it, though, is um, the majority of folks who fly regularly end up buying their own plane because on a per-hour basis, as long as you're flying 100 hours a year, which when you own your airplane is not really a hard thing to do, you're actually going to save money by owning your plane because you're going you're gonna to pay that lower hourly cost versus having to pay for the overhead of the flight school and air insurance and all the other things that a business has to do. Now, in terms of purchase of an aircraft, people will probably be surprised to learn that the majority of aircraft owned out there are in excess of 20 years in age, and many of them are over 30 years in age, and a lot of them are over 40 years in age. And really, that's a testament to the standards that the FAA has put in place, and that's really where aircraft differ from other things like boats and cars. And, and some of that's the obvious, right? If your car breaks down, which happens to everybody regularly, uh, you can pull over. Um, you can't necessarily just do that in an airplane. Um, and so the FAA ensures or by requiring a minimum safety standard. So every year, an aircraft has to go through an annual check. Uh, it's not unlike your annual physical when, when we go to the doctor. That's essentially what we're doing in the airplane. Um, so you can get aircraft. Uh, I'll say that the typical aircraft that I fly is one of the most common, the Cessna Skyhawk, which is the equivalent of the four-seat family sedan in the aviation world. You could buy one of those today for around thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars. Again, that's not much different than the family car mm -hmm. or you know, a boat. Where the expense comes comes in with aircraft ownership is unlike a boat. You can't just necessarily park it in your garage, unless of course you live in your park, um, which we have a couple here. In and there is a new age coming of the rotable aircraft, which that's the whole thing. You fold up your wings and you drive it home. But uh, for the most part, wow. All right. Whoa, 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 whoa. All right. Time out. Time All out. Right. Time out. Time out. <laughs> Full, wait. Foldable wings and you drive it home? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's uh, a number of startup companies who are looking at, at those sorts of things. And um, awesome. I'm going to screw up the name Terra Future, which is uh, based in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. They're, they're probably the most well known here in the United States, um, but they are working on what's called the rotable aircraft. So essentially, it's a it's an aircraft that is approved for use on the roads. And the idea isn't you wouldn't travel in it like you do your personal car, but you would drive it home from the airport so you could park it in your own garage. So wow, that's cool. Okay, yeah. okay. coming to uh, a world near you, I guess. <laughs> so, so Sean, talk about. So obviously, you talked a little bit about the plane there, right? And some pricing options because you know what you just said was, hey, the the Cessna Skyhawk at you know thirty thirty five thousand. Right. And, you know, various levels of use and, and age there. Right. So like anything, I'm sure, look, you could go as high as you want with a, with a plane, just like a car. You could you want the Lambo. You could go all the way up as much as you want. So but in terms of other costs, so I think some of the concern here is the gotcha cost. OK, all right. Got the got the plane, got the certificate. I'm flying. 
and I, I fly to Florida, I land in a local airport. So like, what sort of other costs are there around it? Right. Of, cause I'm thinking fuel. It's not like you're going and you're buying your, um, you know, your regular unleaded at the, at the gas station here. <laughs> so fuel is a concern. Uh, but also, uh, you know, in terms of parking at, you know, whether I'm storing my plane or I'm again, as you said, renting, well, I have local airport costs, but also destination costs there and i'm just thinking about now when i get to my destination it's not like i have a car right i might be at a different airport as well so there might be some costs in terms of the transportation out of the airport can you talk a little bit about that sure absolutely so the, as you say the, the gotcha cost the the cost to getting into aviation with with your aircraft the expense isn't really the aircraft itself and just as you said um, you know, depending upon what you want for an airplane and what you're looking for and the, the type of flying you plan to do will ultimately dictate how much you're going to spend on, on the aircraft. And brand new aircraft are very expensive, but mm-hmm. that's not on, you know, a sports car, for instance. And, and there's a lot of folks that are into cars and they've got that classic car. And so we see a lot of that mentality in the aviation world. That's, that's their baby. And so uh, they're going to put their money into that. Um, but again, that part's not required. The part that is required, again, is that annual maintenance. And unless you do have the rotable aircraft, you're parking in your own garage, or you're fortunate enough to live on an airport, you have to you have to store your aircraft somewhere. So typically, that's either going to be at a tie down at an airport, which is usually the cheapest thing to do, or you have the aircraft in a hangar, which is what we like to do in the Northeast because we get all that snow and ice. And so that can be an added expense or an added annual expense. And then there's uh, again, as you said, the fuel costs in. <laughs> You get further per hour in an airplane than you will in a car, but you're going to spend more in fuel to get there, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. um, that's an, another consideration that someone would learn as they get into flight training is that unlike miles per gallon, which is how we gauge automobiles, uh, we gauge gallons per hour in, in fuel burners. Um, so your, your operational costs, so to speak, does go up relative to a car, but you get much further down the road, as it were, for that cost. So um, those are the things that, that can add up. But again, it's all relative, right? So if you're only going to fly once a year, well, that's an extreme expense mm-hmm. for that one, one flight. But if you're going to fly every week or every couple of days, over the course of a year, you're going to find yourself spending a lot less to enjoy that per unit of time is really how we look at it. So those are some of the recurring costs. Of course, the, the medical aspect of that on the, on the the pilot's side of it, um, if they have medical conditions, you know, the FAA does require you have to get certain tests done to verify your, your medical health. So depending upon what medical issues you have, that could be another extraneous expense that's not directly related to the aircraft ownership or the flying that might have to come out of your pocket. So those those are some other concerns, again, contingent of one's health. What was some like, of other- like destination costs. So say, cause I think some of the concern is, so say I fly to Cleveland, Ohio, right. Sure. But you know, and I get clearance to land and I, I'm making all this up. I have no idea what I'm talking about. So <laughs> I go into Cleveland, I land, right. And, and I get off the plane and I can imagine that someone's kind of screaming at me like, okay, what, by the way, your bill is going to be this for keeping your plane at our airport for the next four days. And, right. and there's maybe local taxes or something, which I know that's part of your world as well as, hey, people are landing here and they tax you based on you coming into their city or town or state or whatever that might be. So, like, what about I get there and other gotcha costs when I when I get to my locale, which obviously would vary by all the regulations and all the airports, but it just would help to understand the structure of it. Sure, absolutely. So, 
Uh, that's not unlike flying the airlines, right? Because once you get to your destination, the airport isn't your destination on the airlines. You, you got to go somewhere else. So you got to figure that out, that logistics aspect too. And that's no different than if you're flying your personal airline, right? You get to the airport, you either got to rent a car or get a taxi or Uber, most common, and, and get to where you're ultimately going. For us, flying oneself is really a means to get somewhere else. And so in, in that sense, you're going to have all the same logistical issues. In terms of the aircraft at the airport, uh, it, you've been to one airport, we say you've been to one airport. They're all different. Uh, but for the most part, you can expect you would have to pay either what we call a tie-down fee or, or an overnight fee to keep your aircraft, the privilege of keeping your aircraft at that airport for a period of time. Obviously, in Maine, we have a lot of snowbirds, spend a lot of time in the wintertime in the south. And typically, they're actually, rather than just uh, as you might for a short trip, just show up and pay the fee, they're actually going to pay for a, a tie-down through the airport because they're going to be there for, if not a couple of weeks, a couple of months at a time. And so there's, there's many different ways to mitigate that seeming upfront cost. Um, but you're right. That is an added expense that you have to consider that, at least on the airlines, once you're off the airplane and out of the airport, you don't care anymore. Um, that aspect of it is not a concern for you. So there, there are costs associated with that. So can you give us a range, like what, like what a tie-down cost could be again. I'm not saying like on average, like it's this, but you know what? What? What is that range in terms of ish? In terms of what you see there for the tie-down cost? But yeah. I, I think more the destination of hey, I I got to pay for fuel. I rented the plane, you know. Yeah. I got down there, and now you know again, I'm paying for a hotel for my family. I'm doing all the the travel thing, but also got to pay for that plane to be sitting there. Sure, absolutely. So not like anything in life, it, it depends on a number of factors. Where are you going and if you're going somewhere, for instance, to a metropolitan area like around New York or Orlando, Florida, or even Tampa, Florida, might be a better example, you're going to pay more for something the closer you are to that more metropolitan area. And so, again, um, as I mentioned, there's ways to mitigate that. Well, maybe you don't fly to the closest airport. Maybe you fly to the next closest airport, which is a little smaller, mm -hmm. a little further away, um, but your costs go down dramatically. Um, and that could be not only on the the, uh, the tie-down fee that you're going to pay, the ramp fees, but on the, uh, the fuel costs too. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, that, that can be the biggest differentiator for a lot of folks is where at an airport around New York or, or D.C. or, again, a metropolitan area like that, you might pay two and sometimes three times as much mm -hmm. for a gallon of fuel at those airports than you would, for instance, at an Old Town, Maine, where you might pay three fifty. Wow. Yeah. That, so, that's that's it's quite the markup right. on fuel. Now, there's a lot of issues in that that, again, my organization works to kind of help improve <laughs> that scenario. But again, the, it's like anything else, right? You, you have a cost uh, or you have, a, you have a, a choice and every choice has a consequence associated with it. So, so oftentimes we'll encourage folks to, to go to that smaller airport that's a little further away and, and, and be willing to drive a little more when you get to your destination uh, to save yourself so much on cost. But in terms of actual numbers, uh, a typical overnight, usually if you park for just a couple hours, they're not going to charge you for that that parking. Um, but if you're going to stay overnight, could be on the low side, $10 a night to the high side, again, using the type of aircraft that I referenced earlier, the, the four-seat Cessna Skyhawk. Um, could be as much as $25 or $30 a night, again, if you're close to a metropolitan area. I was envisioning much more. Yes. Me too. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> Woo. Now we're okay. Again, it, it's all – It's uh, there's so many factors that the, the business at that airport would consider and how they're going to charge, right? So if, you, if you're if you rolling up in a, in a brand new um, 
Cirrus SR-22, which is kind of the, the premier private aircraft that has a parachute system. And folks may have heard of that. And uh, a brand new one of those could be $800,000. You know, they're going to charge you a lot more for their services than some of the blowing up in $35,000 uh, Cessna Skyhawk. Gotcha. And that's, that's kind of the nature of the game. But as somebody gets into training and they've already made a conscious decision for the type of aircraft they're going to purchase, chances are those fees or those costs are are correlated with the type of aircraft and the type of flying that they do. But, but what you said is pretty important because somebody's flying to Florida, right? And all of a sudden, you know, an hour and a half into your trip, you're like, you know, the, the son in the back or the daughter in the back has to use the bathroom. Or, you know, we got to stop because we're, we, you know, we were actually doing some touring along the way. We were wanted to go over certain sites or so we use more fuel than maybe we thought we were going to use on the way down because we took a detour here or there. So we got to fill up with gas. We got to use the bathroom. So if you stopped in for a couple hours, you're just what you're saying for the tie down fee is there might not be any fee for you just to stop, refuel, get back in the sky. Uh, that's correct. Um, again, that's that's not um, it, it's again, so many factors, right? But yeah. that's no different than driving around the highway and, and getting off on one exit and going to McDonald's versus the local restaurant, whatever. So um, you're absolutely right to, to just make a, a pit stop, as it were. You know, you might have no no costs at all. Um, and, and oftentimes, what we call those businesses that we stop at, rather than call them a gas station, we call them a fixed base operator, or for short, an FBO. And they provide those um, those aircraft services and give you an opportunity to get off the airport or on the airport. That's where you go when you land at the airport is, is the FBO versus the airport terminal, which is where the airlines go. Separate location on, on the airport. And oftentimes, they'll waive those fees just because you're going to buy fuel, most likely. If you're halfway between your destination or your departure and your destination, you're going to buy fuel because you want to make sure you're going to get there. And so they'll waive the other fees just to because they know you're going to pay for the fuel. So, again, there's there's a lot of different ways to, to skin that proverbial. Um, so we've touched on that a little bit, but what are some of the pros and cons of doing private piloting versus commercial airlines? I would imagine there's quite a few of them, but what are some of the pros and cons? Yeah, so some, some of them we've, we've mentioned, right? So like with the airlines, you don't have to worry about stopping and getting fuel or uh, you know parking your aircraft and, and things of that nature. Um, yeah. Those are concerns that you would have if, even if you're renting an aircraft or flying your own aircraft. Those are kind of the added fees, convenience fees, is how you might think of them, um, that we have to, to worry about. You know, there's, for the most part, for light general aviation, unless you're fortunate enough to be uh, on the end of the spectrum where you can get from here to the other side of the country on one flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's always going to be room or a reason to use the airlines. And mm-hmm. we don't have our brothers and sisters in the airlines. They, they serve a valuable purpose. You know, for myself, I'm not going to fly myself in the aircraft that I use to Arizona. I family in Tucson, Arizona. If I was going to go there, I'm, I'm most likely still going to use the commercial airlines. Conversely, if I have my own airplane, I have family in Florida as well. I might use my aircraft to get to Florida because it's just more convenient. Mm. Um, the flip side of that, though, is we're more susceptible to weather considerations, apply yeah. ice for the most part. And, um, you know, if you're in the middle of a storm, you're more likely to be able to get to your destination on the airlines than you would be uh, in general aviation. And not that you wouldn't get there, but you got to wait for the storm to pass. Yeah. And you got to wait for, uh, again, all the other things that, that have to occur for you to, to make it there safe. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about is having fun and getting there safely, which can sometimes in our winter weather take longer yeah. in general, but it's still more fun. And you're not in a crowded airplane with other people stuck in the middle seat and you don't have to. So again, it's, it's all, 
the balance of the pros and cons. As you say. I imagine the snacks are way better <laughs> in the private uh, <laughs> aviation as well. <laughs> I tend to think so. Yeah. <laughs> More options. So I know, Ben, uh, when we were talking about the cost a little bit ago, we kind of touched on going places. So just kind of cost aside, I want to talk about the process. So say I'm here, I got my plane rented or I bought it, I got my license, I'm ready, I want to go and hit, you know, five cities, I'm like planning this big trip, you know, like I would imagine I plan a road trip. Kind of what is that process like? Do I just, do I call up the airports in Cleveland and say, hey, I'm coming in? Or is there like a, you know, is there a strict process here to, to kind of plan a, a trip and your flight maps and, and all that? So every pilot has their own way of doing things. And that's no different than any other person with anything else. That but um, there certainly are some common things that we know. And the first thing is you got to plan your flight, right? So flight planning is is very much a part of, the safety aspect of flying, right? Because you don't want to go fly into a hurricane. So the first thing we tend to do is, all right, where do we want to go? What's the weather like? If you're taking a long trip, you might start looking at that information a week out, right? Because mm. even though we don't care what the weather is right now, yeah. depending upon where you're looking in the country, you might give you an indication of, of uh, what things are going to be like a week from now when you get there. So um, I guess I should add, that's a big part of the flight training curriculum is learning to read and understand weather information. Sometimes it can be a little bit dry, but when you start to apply it and actually um, have to, to deal with it when you're flying, it, it becomes a lot of fun for a lot of folks because sure. then you get to sit home and when you're watching the weatherman on the channel, say, no, that's not right, or, or no, actually, he's making it sound uh, a lot worse than it's really going to be. You're surprised how much more accurate you become at forecasting the weather than the weatherman or woman on the local news channel. So, so is it like a two-for-one certificate? Like, can I fly a plane and go, go work on the news? Or <laughs> no, you probably have still pretty pretty close understanding of weather by the time you do it. So, so that's the first part of it is, again, is, is checking the weather and understanding what that's going to be like because that will just determine when you're going to leave and exactly the route you're going to take to get there. Mm -hmm. um, now, once you've got an idea of what you're, what, which way you want to go, um, one of the big things we have in aviation is, is uh, redundancy, right? You're always going to have a backup plan, mm -hmm. and it doesn't hurt to have a backup plan for the backup plan. And that's all just because of the reality. It's not because we expect something bad to happen, but we plan for something bad to happen so that if it does, we're prepared for it. Mm -hmm. That's what the safety aspect of aviation is all about. And so um, ways to, to do that, as you said, a multi-stop trip, that's hard to do on the airlines, right? You can't. Yeah. Yeah. Say, hey, I want to go to my uh, winter residence in Florida, but you know what? I'm going to go stop and see my friends in D.C., and then we're going to bump out to uh, Tennessee to go uh, see a concert in Nashville or something and then head back to, to Florida. You can't do that on the airlines without incurring a great expense and wasting a lot of time sitting around the airport. But you can do that in general aviation and a lot faster than you would be able to do it in your car. Once you decide where it is you need to go or you want to stop, we do recommend that you call that FBO I referenced earlier, the business that accepts the airplane when you get there. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that they are going to have fuel available because some some airports don't, don't sell fuel. They're far and few between, but the, the smaller the airport is, um, the less services they're likely to have. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the things that you want to look at and be familiar with before you even step foot in your airplane to get somewhere. So you'd also want to find out what are those costs? What's what's that overnight cost going to be? What other fees might there be? Um, and that way you already have a pretty good idea before you've got in your aircraft what your flights, your whole trip's going to cost you. Because maybe at the end, you're going to cut out a trip, a part of that trip. Because, yeah. yeah, well, I, I was only going to spend uh, $300 on these other fees, but if I go there, that'll be too much. So that's uh, all. Can, can, you, can you negotiate costs? 
On some level, you can at, at some airports. Usually, the the bigger bigger the airport is, or or the what we would say uh, in, inside the industry, the more corporatized an, air, an airport is, the less I should say, the more rigid they're going to be on price. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you're at more of a, the the mom and pop airfield, the local airfield kind of destination, you know, chances are their fees are going to be so much lower anyway. You're not going to feel the the burn to <laughs> gotcha. negotiate prices, but Again, if you don't ask, you don't know. So mm-hmm. that's the part of it. Right. Can you also kind of go through a little bit more of, um, hey, I, I now landed. Like, now what? Right. So because I, I, I imagine we're, we're land, we, we get off our plane and like, what do we do then? Because I, I could see where it's like, I don't know. I'm in a strange place. I don't really know where I'm going. I don't know like how to access anything. Like, what do I do after I exit my plane? I've landed. So certainly for some of your listeners who've never experienced that before, that that could seem like a terrifying thing. What are we going to do? But all throughout your flight training process, you'll be visiting other airports and stopping at those places with your flight instructor. So somebody who's been there and done it will have walked you through that process many times. And once you do it once, they're all basically the same in terms of what that experience is like. But... Somebody, when you pull up to the airport or once you land and you taxi to the ramp where you're supposed to be, um, and you would have an idea of where that is through your flight planning beforehand. Um, and if you didn't, and sometimes you don't, know, if, if the airport has an air traffic control tower, you can ask the controllers, hey, how do I get to this? And they'll give you taxi instructions to make sure you're going to the right spot on the airport. You don't end up at fire station. You want to get to the FBO at the other end. So there's a lot of people available to help you throughout this process. I guess it's kind of the point of what I'm getting at. And that's true from the day you start flight training to the day you hang up your pilot certificate and stop flying. There's always someone there to help you on that. But once you get to there, typically the FBO is already listening to the, or, or staff at the FBO, the line service folks, they're already listening to the radio communications. So they know you flying, flew in and they're going to be on the ramp waiting for you. And they're going to be taxiing you into a specific parking spot. And some of that is because they deal with aircraft of all different sizes and shapes. And they want to get your aircraft where it's supposed to be so it's not in the way of the, the corporate jet that's coming in next. So they're more than happy to be out there and help you and point you the way or walk you back into the FBO. And the FBO is very much like, um, you know, the highway restaurant, right? There's, uh, you might not have restaurants inside to go eat, but there might be a vending machine. There's usually going to be a leather couch. There's going to be TVs, usually free coffee and cookies. That's one right. of the perks you get when you go to the FBO. Kids certainly love that. I know I do. <laughs> and free popcorn. That's the other thing most of them have. I don't know why that is, but popcorn always makes you thirsty, so you got to go buy a Coke. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, restrooms, uh, usually they also have a mini kitchen. And that's because a lot of flight crews, you know, charter pilots and, and um, corporate pilots, will spend a lot of time at FBOs. So they make them very home-like. Some of them even have movie theaters inside, so you can watch the movie if you're going to be there, you know, 12 hours waiting for your your uh, passengers to come back. But that's all. I never thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah. But that's all accessible to us as private pilots, right? They don't say, oh, no, you're you're not a commercial pilot. You don't get to use this. It's, hey, you're our customer. Come on in and have a good time. Relax and have fun. That's what it's about. Hmm. But again, typically in this circumstance, your destination isn't the FBO. Your destination is our airport. So chances are you know, they usually have rental, air, uh, excuse me, rental cars there at that facility, or they have relationships with the local rental car companies. So they'll get you to wherever you need to go to get to that next point on your trip. So, yeah, 
can, can you talk a little bit about, I know one thing is um, we've talked about with a previous guest was this idea of living internationally, right? Uh, we had inter, uh, International Living Magazine come on. Uh, one of the senior editors there was Dan Pressure. So he did a really great job of kind of talking about like living in other places. But I could also see where, hey, you know, we've this concept that we're talking about is piloting equal freedom. And maybe it's, you know, hey, we're in Maine and maybe I want to go to uh, Quebec City for the weekend. Right. Or, you know, maybe I want to, you know, take a flight. To, I get to Florida and I could go internationally different places there. So, you know, I get my pilot's license. Is it like, hey, I really can only now fly my uh, plane within the contiguous United States. Uh, can I go other places? So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what is the like, can we? And then what's the process to go in or out of a country? Great question. So it can be a complicated answer. So I'm going to do my best to, to try to simplify it for your, your listeners. But so when, as I mentioned before, our, our driver's license are state issued. Our pilot certificates are issued by the federal government, right? So and the FAA is only responsible for the U.S. airspace, so to speak. So really, we're only approved to fly in the United States. Now, there are, I'm sure many folks are familiar generally with ICAO, in ICAO countries, the International Council of, of Aviation Organizations, I think it stands for. And there's, a, I think, 125 thereabouts countries who are ICAO countries. And those are, for the most part, your first world countries. It's uh, the United States, it's Canada, it's Mexico, pretty much all of Russia, and a number of Asian countries. Uh, oh, and the Caribbean, I should add. And it, for the most part, you can fly in ICAO country, anybody that's a part of that, just as you would here in the United States. And when I say that, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. You have to fly by those countries' flight rules, and every country has their own set of flight rules. So it is, the onus of responsibility is on the pilot to understand what those rules are when they get to that country. Um, so there is a lot of homework that goes into that. Now, I'll add, where I started at AOPA in the Pilot Information Center, we were a technical call center. We were there to answer those technical questions for our members, and international flight planning was part of that. We don't do the physical flight planning, but we help somebody find the necessary information that they need to go to that destination. And there are services out there that people can contract with that depending upon the type of aircraft you're flying and how extensive your trip is, you know, will dictate the cost of it. But there are businesses out there that will help you plan that trip. Interesting. Now, I will say that in my end of general aviation, what I call the lower end in terms of, uh, again, aircraft operational costs, smaller aircraft, it's not every day that somebody flies a Skyhawk, Cessna Skyhawk, four-seater airplane across the Atlantic. Because A, uh, a single-engine airplane over the middle of the ocean is probably not the safest thing to do. People do it every day. People do it safely every day. Um, but they don't necessarily do it for a pure recreational basis, as we're talking. So for the most part, our members spend most of their international travel going either to Canada, Mexico, or the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, you're able to exercise those privileges without much issue here in North America. I will note, though, that general aviation is a unique privilege that we have here in the United States. Canada and Australia are probably the next closest. Um, Europe is very different. General aviation doesn't exist over there in the same way that it exists here. And it's the nature of the structure of their system. But uh, I guess to summarize it, it is so very much more expensive to fly in Europe than it is here. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that that we won't get into. Um, but this is a very unique privilege that we have here in the United States with our freedom to fly. In, in a lot of other countries, that freedom does not exist. So it is an option to be able to do that, to, to fly across the pond, as we say. But again, that's that's not a typical common thing. That, that may be where, for the average pilot, um, the better choice is to go in the airlines because you're, you're more apt to get there faster mm. um, 
and and with uh, a greater margin of safety. Um, so it's a little fitting that I got this next question because I am not the greatest airline traveler. <laughs> I get a little nervous in the air. And so I'm sure a lot of people can relate. And you probably get this question all the time, especially when we hear about little planes crashing. Um, so how safe is it or how risky is it? Um, and does that change for people, specifically the pilots, as they age? Great question. So, yes, when we hear about aircraft accidents, that's very scary. Now, I will say that it does happen, right? Uh, aircraft are machines. Machines break. Mm-hmm. And as much as that happens, um, you know, we're, we're human and pilots make mistakes, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, as I sort of referenced before, training is all about safety. That, that's really the, the end point of why the FAA stipulates you have to have so many hours in in the aircraft. And I'll add that even though the FAA sets that minimum at 40 hours, the average pilot gets around 65 hours before they actually take and pass their checkride. That's just the nature of the training. On the whole, general aviation, flying aircraft is one of the safest forms of transportation. Now, it's scary when we hear about it because it is on the news and, and pardon the expression, but they, they, they blow that story up because it's actually not that common. So when it yeah. happens, it is. Um, you're far more likely to get into an accident and get injured in your car today mm-hmm. out of your driveway than you are to get into an aircraft test. And again, there's so many factors for why that is, right? I alluded to it before. The FAA sets very strict safety standards for aircraft, which is why the cost of, of owning and maintaining your aircraft can be that bigger part rather than the actual purchase of the aircraft. We don't really do that in our cars the same to the same level, I guess, as the FAA requires of us for aircraft. So that's, that's part of it. And you had a couple of great questions in there. I might have to ask you to, to repeat. Oh, yeah. Um, the other one was, um, does the safety or the risk change as the pilots age? Okay. Great question. So there's a couple different answers to that. The, the, the most direct answer is no. One's age does not contribute to the quote-unquote safety of the flight. And in my experience, the more life experienced a pilot is, you catch my drift, the terrified yeah. uh, <laughs> they tend to be because they've been through more experiences. They, yeah. they have that experience to draw on that a, a fledgling pilot maybe hasn't had that, that experience. Now, the other part of this we haven't touched on is aircraft insurance. So the FAA sets standards, but most everything in the aviation world is really dictated by insurance. And the cost of insurance, not unlike driving a car or uh, other forms of insurance, can increase with one's age. But that has less to do with, and I'm not an insurance expert, so um, bear with me when I say this, that has less to do with their physical age and safety and more to do with, I guess, extraneous considerations that that go along with being older, which have more to do with the medical side of it rather than than the actual flying and the the pilot themselves. So, So that is a consideration. But no. As I mentioned, our the average our average member is uh, about 47 years of age, but the average aircraft owner is 67. Years. And I know plenty of folks flying in their 80s and 90s. In fact, there's a there's a well-known club in among aviation circles called the UFOs, the United Flying Octogenarians, and they have a, a very large following. And uh, I know a number of great pilots who are part of that. Active pilots still flying today. So, Sean, I have a it's a it's a different slant on on piloting and experiencing aircraft. We uh, Abby and I had a client meeting the other day where the client we asked the client about um, experiencing um, uh, aircrafts. And he goes, you know, the one thing I always want to do was, again, faster, the better. 
I always wanted to get in and experience an F-16. Sure. Could somebody do that? Like, again, these are military aircraft that are meant to go super, super fast. Like, if somebody just wanted to experience, like, I want to get in a F-18 Hornet or or some military kind of, like, uh, again, very offensive weapon there. How would would they do it? Can they do that? Is that possible? Uh, Well, so yes and no. So the Air Force Thunderbirds and and the Navy Blue Angels, they do give uh, special rides on occasion. Um, But it's not the kind of thing... For those aircraft that you just sign up for and you get to do it. And again, unfortunately, I don't know the specifics of how those folks get to do it. Oftentimes, you'll see a movie celebrities get mm-hmm. to experience that, particularly like in a Top Gun movie would be a great example. Exactly. You know, all those folks in, in, in who participated in the, the 80s making of that movie, the Navy took them all flying to get that experience so that they could better articulate it. Because the, the military knew they were going to benefit from that movie. Sure. And the same thing happening with Top Gun, previously recently happened with Top Gun 2, which is... Slated to come out at some point here in the near future. So those examples do happen. I, I think it's a sort of ambassador program type thing where the military does that to give people that experience. But what's more realistic for the average pilot is there are companies who specialize in giving that experience. AOPA does not make recommendations for specific companies. So sure. I only there's a, a company in Florida, forget which airport they're based out of offhand, but it's called Stallion 51. If anybody wants to uh, to Google that, you'd be able to see it, and you can actually get a you have your choice of a vintage military aircraft to go fly in up through a P fifty one Mustang, which for many of us in the aviation is kind of the premier propeller premier propeller aircraft to be able to fly. You know, the, the plane that won World War II, as many say, you can have that experience. Now it's not cheap; they're a, they're a business, but you get I guess it's like an hour flight potentially in in that, and they'll they'll videotape it. So. Hmm. If you if that's what your your desire is to experience it, there are absolutely ways to do it. Nice. By the same token, for folks that are, are at the end of the spectrum who can maybe have more financial freedom to be able to experience things like that, uh, you can actually buy former military aircraft that are no longer in use. Um, one of the most common, and we've actually, we have an AOPA member who is fortunate enough to own one. It's called an L-39. It uh, was a Czechoslovakian-built aircraft back in the uh, 70s and 80s. But there's actually many of them for sale. And these are the types of aircraft where to buy one would only cost about $180,000. But it's, it's not the cost of buying it. It's the cost of maintaining it, which yeah. can be like $7,000 an hour kind of thing. Whew. But the point is, for folks that, that are in that segment of, of the world where they can afford that, it is very much accessible to folks. Gotcha. So, Sean, we have reached the end of our episode. And one thing that we love to do with all of our guests is ask one question doesn't necessarily pertain to what we've talked about this episode, but it pertains to our show, The Retirement Success in Maine Podcast. I want to ask you, what is your personal definition of retirement success? You know, looking ahead in your life, you know, what will you picture your successful retirement to be? Successful retirement. So, well, as Ben knows, uh, I have two young children and uh, typical family of four with family dog. So much of our life is uh, is spent around rushing from point A to point B, right? And mm-hmm. the, uh, the up, up, uptight part of, of uh, having to get things done. So for me, I think the ultimate retirement success is is really just the ability to uh, relax and, and have fun um, in a way that allows me to do the things that I like to do, which for me is fine. That's yeah. that an expression of freedom. Um, but it's also uh, bass fishing and, and playing guitar. So really, it's awesome. just the freedom to be able to to relax and do those things that uh, most enjoy doing. Nice. 
Well, Sean, really appreciate you coming on our show today. I, again, I, I know me personally, and I can speak for Curtis and Abby here, learned a lot about the world of aviation. And this is a world that, you know, is not really kind of something we deal with every day. So it's really great to get your expertise, you know, the level and uh, the width and the depth of expertise uh, that we can share with with our clients, our listeners um, is really valuable. So thanks again. And um, we'll catch you next time. Absolutely. Thank you all. Thanks. Right. See ya. So really excited to have Sean Collins on the show today, again, accessing the world of piloting over 50. Um, I think he did a really great job uh, kind of giving um, uh, a really good overview and, and some insight into some of the things to, that you should know, some things you should uh, be mindful of when you get into that world, and also maybe some myth busting about um, things that people could be scared of, of you know, it, or especially like, hey, Here's one of us and we're aging and we're 85 years old and, and, you know, maybe the kids are going to say to you, Hey, you shouldn't be flying because you're this age. You know, there's a lot of mechanisms, a lot of safety things there that I thought uh, Sean did a really good job of, of kind of going through. But of course, with all of our episodes, we like to, um, uh, highlight some things that we learned in terms of lessons that we think our clients and, and listeners would take away. Um, Curtis, you want to kick us off with something that, uh, that you learned from, from Sean's, uh, discussion with us today? Yeah. You kind of, you kind of touched on it there, Ben, um, with saying, you know, the, the child says, Oh, you're 85 years old. You shouldn't be flying. I think that was kind of my natural thought was, you know, age is such a huge factor in this, but Sean proved that wrong. You know, it's just because you're, you're 80 or 90 or 70 or whatever that on the surface is not disqualifying for you to, to go pursue a, a pilot certificate or keep flying your own plane or renting planes. You know, he, he did a good job explaining, you know, the underlying, you know, it's really more important about the medical aspect of it. But I at 26 could have a medical condition that disqualifies me, but an 85 year old can still fly just because they're 85 doesn't mean they can't. Yeah. And I think that's a drumbeat that, you know, we hear about as we're aging, even in and it may even start as we're returning 50 or 60 or 70 is that there's a drumbeat about getting old, right? Yeah. And, and that you're because you're you're aging that you you maybe there's things that people view that you're not capable of or mm-hmm. or that they, they kind of express those views that you should be slowing down in certain areas. And and that's, again, what the fun of what we're trying to do here is that myth busting of that. Like, hey, yeah. just because I'm 65 and I want to go learn how to fly and maybe buy, the, you know, that Cessna Skyhawk that Sean was talking about at a pretty affordable price. You know, that's something that, you know, it, it's not too late to start. Mm-hmm. It's not too late to get going. And and the, conversely, he's again, he said the average age of the, the aircraft owners was 67. Well, geez, that, that that's uh, you know that's uh, right in the wheelhouse to get going right now. Yeah. Is is this is what you're you're pretty normal and pretty average at that point? So that's a real kind of really cool takeaway. Abby, from your end, uh, what did you uh, take away from the discussion with Sean? Um, I found it really interesting his description of private piloting versus the commercial airline side. So I've only really traveled by commercial airline and the private side just sounds so much easier to deal with and you know less time waste and just really enjoyable so it really intrigued me honestly about the whole private piloting thing and you know learning more about it I thought that was just really a fascinating side of it 
Yeah, and I, I think uh, so. Actually, one of the uh, contacts we have over at Vanguard, her name is Kelly Orr. We've mentioned her in the past mm-hmm. in, in terms of getting us uh, access to Mike DeJoseph uh, from Vanguard. So she actually has mentioned like her husband is a, is a pilot, and one of the things they do is like, oh well, we went to Bar Harbor for the weekend. So you know they're in they're in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You know they fly up to uh, Bar Harbor. It takes them about uh, about an hour, an hour and fifteen to get up there. You know, you think of that drive, yeah. Portsmouth up to Bangor, mm-hmm. you know, so you have yeah. about a three, three and a half hour drive there, mm-hmm. another an hour and a half, you know, down to Bar Harbor. Geez, you're talking of four and a half hours each way. And it took her an hour, you know, plus to kind of do that round each way in a, in a, in a plane. Yeah. What a what a great time saver that is where you know from leaving to touchdown to kind of get on your on your in that weekend trip you know it wasn't like you basically took a whole day to now travel on each side of it right. you got that whole weekend back really just with that flight so pretty cool I, I think from the yeah. whole, the whole concept of a time machine is that that is that you, you know there's ways that you're going to save time here and and that i guess that feeds right into the like well how expensive is a time machine right. that was one of the lessons i wanted to share was geez i thought the affordability was you know again a lot of the clients that we talk to they're very much cost conscious mm-hmm. right they're very much about protecting that nest egg and they're really worried about a frivolous expense that hey i i spend this much money and now i've really bankrupted my uh, retirement the back right. end of it mm-hmm. so are there ways that i can have the fun be cost conscious and do that so i think sean did a really good job of kind of going through that i know we kind of pressed him on kind of ranges on some of these things and airports and gasoline and you know all of that and in the tie down fees i think those are really important things to just explore mm-hmm. but also just to emphasize it's probably not as expensive as you think it is mm-hmm. that you can do these things you can go to where you want to go you can maybe customize your trip a whole lot better as he said i want to go to this locale go over to tennessee and have a go visit a really great country concert maybe go down to florida man that's not something you could easily do with commercial right right really hard to do so that, that was really right. i thought cool kind of takeaway but for for those that are listening here again we are wrapping up our show today good to have you on board again our website you can kind of go to is blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash 34 uh enter that into your browser you can uh come up with this uh podcast page find more resources actually sean's going to work on getting us a whole ton of mm. resources about getting into piloting and some information about AOPA. He has a really good video there as well about um, highlights somebody going through their own piloting experience and kind of shows you what it is to what it's like to be behind, uh, be in the cockpit, be behind the wheel of a of a plane, flying to different destinations, experiencing family more often. Uh, so we'll put that link there too. But really appreciate you tuning in. I go. I know this is an area that's pretty foreign to us, um, but um, uh, appreciate having on board. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. 
Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.